So, Richard, how are you, Harry? I'm great after what, 26 years or something? Like, oh, yeah. Holy it might God. even be more. <laughs> Richard, a quick question. Yeah. Mongiat, Mongia, Mongia, Mongiat? Uh, actually, it, it's fairly simple. It's just Monjat. Oh, okay. Monjat. Mon yeah, jet. so Monjet. Okay. Monjet. It's like airplane jet at the end. Monjet. Okay, okay Monjet. That'll be fine. Perfect. Thank you. Don't mon forget jet. to pronounce the T. The T? At the end of Monjet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Otherwise, people think Monja, Monja. Okay. <laughs> well, it, it is an Italian name. It's a very okay. northern Italian name. Yeah, without oh. the vowel ending. Oh. That's right. And it's from the province of Friuli, which is yep. tucked in that top, top corner between Slovenia yes. and Austria. Very, very strong Austro-Hungarian roots. Absolutely. Isn't that a cheese? Yeah. It, There's a cheese that comes from there, a lot of good wine. Yeah. We even have our own version of strudel and sauerkraut. Really? Wow. Yeah, that funny. part of Italy was forever always being overrun by somebody. <laughs> Very true. And it was most, yeah, and it was mostly probably, as Peter says, the Austro-Hungarian. All right. Sounds good. Well, folks, welcome to another edition of The Undefinable Spirit here on the Sill Podcast. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 116, The Undefinable Spirit. Richard Mongette and the Big Picture. Welcome to another edition of the Undefinable Spirit here on the Sill Podcast. And I'd like to say this, in 1994, I acquired a wonderful painting from the Annex Gallery in Toronto. It was entitled Entre Chien et Loup, between dog and wolf, a painting that I've had on my office wall and pondered on for the last 26 years. That painting inspired our most recent podcast here on The Sill, and we thought, wouldn't it be wonderful as one of our undefinable spirit interviews to talk to this prolific artist whose artistic life has ranged across so many aspects of that world. And we are very excited to have Richard Monjat here today to talk about all things artistic and more. So, by way of quick introduction, Richard Mongiat has been exhibiting his paintings and assemblages in public, commercial, and artist collective galleries across Canada since 1984. He has curated an exhibition at the University of Toronto, as well as founded the artist collectives from A Pit and Loop Gallery. From his experiences in working with and in artist collectives, Richard is presently producing and directing a series of digital documentaries chronicling the artist collective and artist collective gallery movement that blossomed in Toronto in the 1990s. He has worked with local communities in creating public art and a Nuit Blanche independent project in the Junction Triangle of Toronto. Richard is also the owner of Scenic Drop Studios, which specializes in painting historical, theatrical soft goods, backdrops, scrims, translucencies, for opera Atelier, whose performances of operas by Mozart, Haydn, Lully, Gluck, and Purcell have been performed across North America, Europe, and Asia. Whew! On that note, Richard Mojat, welcome to the Sill Podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Harry, and hello, Peter. Thank you very much Hi. for having me. 
Now, back in the 1990s, Richard, I was part of a group show, believe it or not, at that same Loop Gallery on Queen Street in Toronto. I had no idea. I didn't know that. Yeah, I had no idea at the time that you had co-founded the artistic collective that supported that gallery. Can you talk about the importance of artistic collectives in the cultural life of the community, both the artistic community and the general public? Yeah, what's interesting is I started Loop in, I guess it was actually 1999, and it was really the brainchild of a woman I knew, a fellow artist named Catherine Baudet, and we had both been involved in the 1990s in a movement of artist collectives that were putting up shows in site-specific locations, so some people might open up a show in the basement of a factory somewhere. Uh, We did one in a shopping mall, the old Dufferin Mall. Some people were doing them in homeless shelters. It was this idea that there were way too many artists and not enough spaces for them to actually show in or to exhibit what they did. And it was also a way for artists to take a little more control of their own careers this way. So Mm-hmm. We had, I'd say, probably from the late 70s up until the 90s, where it reached a point where all these people had all this energy and all this creativity and nowhere to bring it. Mm-hmm. So they took advantage of a DIY movement or a DIY sensibility to say, we'll do it ourselves. And I think whenever you have groups of people, taking on such activities this way, they tend to inspire other artists to do the same. So you have a building of a scene that happened. Mm -hmm. So around 1999-2000, we had sort of been through all these site-specific shows, and the idea came around to actually have one location, a gallery, where a number of artists could then show their work, show their work in a way that made them feel maybe more comfortable. So if they felt that they didn't want to do commercial work per se, or they had a gallery that didn't want to show such work that they felt was maybe a little too far on the outside, here was an outlet for them to show that work. Here was a space for them to explore all sorts of things that they may not have been able to get into other places. And again, I can talk about the Queen West scene at that point. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have a buildup of certain galleries, certain people. It blossoms uh, into a scene which then affects the art scene in a place like Toronto, which then affects, I think, the culture of the city as a whole through these activities. Mm -hmm. So, Richard, you're currently collaborating on a project called Collective City 25 short web films documenting the artist collective's movement, which exploded in Toronto during the 1990s. Is the filmmaking creative process uh, very different for you from the brush to canvas experience? Yeah, it's kind of exciting in a way because in the studio where I'm the one who's actually painting the canvases, I'm in control of all the creative decisions that happen. Mm. I'm not a filmmaker. So how that project came about was 
I had been to a show at the MOCA on Queen Street when it was located there, and they had done an exhibition looking at Chromosome, the art collective Chromosome back in the late 70s, and the Queen Street scene that existed between roughly University and Spadina going as far over as the Cameron Hotel. And one of the artists involved in that scene and this exhibition was a Toronto artist named Ray Johnson. And I was speaking to her about the exhibition because uh, one of my bugaboos is is that Toronto and the institutions in Toronto are really, really terrible at recording Toronto's art history. Um, Mm -hmm. It comes and goes, it disappears, no one knows about it from generation to generation. And so Ray had said to me, well, Chromosome was just a little before my time. And she said, well, you're responsible now to make sure that the accomplishments of your generation in the art world gets recorded. So get off your ass and go and do something. And thank God at this time, technology has sort of advanced to the point where making a film in the past would have been financially outrageous. We could actually do this digitally for quite an inexpensive uh, amount of money. So we found editors through the National Film Board. We knew people who taught at film school. We were able to actually utilize their talents to help us tell the story of these art groups that put on these collective shows in the 90s. So apologies for the long-winded answer, but Mm. we're kind of, David Sylvester and myself who are doing this, we're kind of like the cigar-chomping producer-directors who allow the real craftsmen who know the film world and film work do their magic. And then we kind of sit back and go, yes, no, that's kind of nice. No, we need to tell the story more this way. So it's more as a director. And that's exciting to me because I don't necessarily have full control and I have to depend more on others and what they bring to the project. Well, you know, I saw the first video on YouTube, the Loop Gallery video. It's excellent. And uh, I saw faces in those pictures whom I knew back in the day. And that was really cool to see Candida Girling and yep. uh, even uh, Dominique's friend. Uh, her name escapes me for a second there. But anyway, faces that I knew from back in the day, which was really interesting. And it was just really well produced, actually, really solid. And looking at those paintings, too, in those pictures, I saw incredible quality. There was great quality, great artwork on those walls oh, yeah. during that period, especially. Toronto has an abundance of very good artists. And, mm-hmm. and again, we live in, unfortunately, we live in Canada in an artistic sense. In every other sense, Canada is a fantastic place to be. But Canada still has that very Protestant mm-hmm. sort of attitude towards art. And yeah. by that, I mean they tend to find it frivolous yeah. and they tend mm-hmm. to not think about it as something that people are willing to support or spend their own personal dollars on Mm -hmm. and it's the culture that I think people don't realize is what makes a place great. It's one of the things that adds the color and the juice and everything else to a place. 
right. to make it an exciting place people want to be in. And we have so many good artists here who basically are still struggling to get by. Yeah. Even our most successful artists tend to have to teach, right. tend to have to do something else. They're always having to find another way to earn a living. Now, but in terms of your own journey, Richard, has there been any particular set of obsessions or preoccupations that have informed your art over the years? And how has it evolved since the early days? Well, you know, like most things in life, things happen. And again, I had no real plan other than when I did go to art school, I fell in love with the act of painting and I knew I wanted to be a painter. And for the first probably eight, nine years out of art school, I supported myself by doing odd jobs. And I was, of course, influenced by what was happening in the art world at the time, which at that time was neo-figurative and uh, figurative expressionistic style of painting. Yeah. And we all kind of come artistically from the world that we find ourselves in, that we had sort of been born into at those times. And then after about eight or nine years of doing odd jobs to support myself, I found myself realizing it was untenable. I, I didn't want to live that way. No. And I luckily ended up in the theater. And I had an opportunity to use the skills that I had. And what was great about that was it threw me into a whole new world I had no idea of. And it threw me into a world of artists and designers and costume makers and all these people, which opened my eyes. And I learned more about painting and art in a way from that experience than I did from going to art school. And who knew? So it was one of those things that I think life happens to you and then you kind of try to roll with it uh, with the opportunities and with what you know and you take it from there. So speaking of life happening to you, obviously, mm -hmm. based on Harry's introduction and our conversation prior to the podcast beginning, I'm curious when I ask my next question, number one, a Northern Italian heritage. Uh, were, yes. Yeah. Were either of your parents artistically inclined, uh, how or did they influence your decisions and uh, creative pursuits? Well, it was very interesting because both of my parents were of a generation that lived through the World War, Second World War, plus a depression before that, and then emigrated to a country where they had to learn a new language and proceeded in lives that weren't what they thought they were going to be. So mm. it was a typical immigrant story. The interesting fact was that it was much, much later when my father was quite old that uh, I realized he actually had quite a talent for drawing. And when he passed away, my mother had told us, and we were surprised. We knew that when he was 14, he studied to be a surveyor, and they had sort of some drawing classes involved with this, although I don't know how they connect. But he had done a little religious scene that was hanging in the house that was very typical for Italian households. But when he passed away, my mother pulled down all of these things from the attic that he had saved his entire life. Oh. He had brought with him to Canada in 1950 exercises, beautiful drawings and exercises that he did as a very young man. And uh, nobody really knew this. So I grew up 
thinking there's no artists in my family. I had a cousin back in Italy who worked as a mosaicist, but there didn't seem to be any real artists until much later in life when I realized my father had a sensitivity and quite a talent for drawing. Mm. That's really cool. Wow. Uh, yeah, let me but just, they were. Yeah. Oh, okay. sorry. Go on. You'll finish what you're going to say. I was just going to say, of course, being raised in that milieu of immigrant parents, they were not happy that I wanted to go to art school. Of course, they wanted me to have a better life and wanted mm-hmm. me to have a decent job. And I remember I had to lie to them by saying I was going to be a commercial artist. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then in my final year, I remember sort of broaching the subject that actually I think I'm going to try to be an artist, which caused a lot of consternation. But in the end, they were very supportive. And I think they were kind of amused and amazed that I managed to always find a way within the arts to make a living. This question is somewhat philosophical, Richard. It sort of relates to what you just said about you telling your parents, uh, it's commercial arts, don't worry, it's got got a point. (laughs) Uh, In one of your emails to me, you said, and I kind of, I'm using other words here, that art shouldn't be too, I guess the word is didactic, telling you what to think, how to approach it. What's the danger in art becoming overtly moralistic, let's say? Well, I think it shortens the equation between the person looking at the art and the artist. And what I mean by that is, for me personally, when I'm looking at artwork, I prefer to have a lot of space so that I can bring myself into that equation. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like oh, when you're having a conversation with somebody, you're seeing a movie or whatever. You want to experience the surprises that may arise out of those situations. You want to be able to, particularly in a work of art, be able to revisit it over the years of your life, uh, Mm. possibly, and to be able to find new things in it. And even if you don't necessarily get it at first, I think that that's a good thing because it's a goal then for you to try to reach towards, and it's not necessarily understanding completely the artist's intent, but to sort of share that energy or that feeling or whatever that you bring to the painting and sort of shows you or allows you to enter into. Anything that becomes, in my view, a little too didactic or political in the sort of propagandistic sense, I think it's like going to school and being told the dates of art historical things. They're telling you things that you either already know or they're telling you how you should be looking at things or how you should be thinking about things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the complete opposite of what art should be doing. Then what actually is the role of art in society, in your view? I think it carries many roles. I think it should actually be something that opens people up on an intellectual as well as an emotional level. I think it's a way that people spiritually can connect with each other. I think it's a way that people can spiritually connect with the world in a certain way. And I'm using spiritual kind of, but not really in a religious sense. It's that unnameable thing that shows you a world that is bigger than the one you may already live in. 
may give you a kinder approach to viewing the world too, wouldn't it? Yeah, and it shows you, I think, a, a different way of looking at things without telling you right. that there's only one way you should be looking at things because the joy of artists and art and the world and people in general is everybody's different and everybody sees things a little differently. And that's an exciting proposition mm -hmm. that, you know, not everybody's going to see things exactly the same way. And when I go back to the, the didacticism of certain types of art, art that sort of says, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. It's a way that artists or people are trying to homogeneously tell people all the same ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes the world a smaller place rather than a bigger place. Box, box. How does it strike you as an exhibit? Well, at first I found it very um, almost obscene, and I consider myself quite a liberal, you know, young guy. And yet when you look at it and think about it, what, what you notice in, in the sort of fifth second looking at it is, is, is the, uh, the contrast between the normality of the table setting, the, the candelabra, the wine, which is something that we're all uh, very familiar with and expected to do, and then the obscenity of the plate, of the dish. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether uh, this is intentional on the artist's part. I assume that it is, although I haven't heard him talk about it. But that conflict and clash really sort of hits home. And so what was obscene at first and rather meaningless uh, does take on a sort of added... How, 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 does it, how does it... What does it do to your mind? It scrambles it. No, it's the awesome thing, what little value is placed on human life. Of course. Yeah, yeah. this is what sure, I feel. Yeah. Human yeah. life is... Uh, human life. feeling is so uh, lightly taken. I mean, there is no... You don't uh, when you read the paper, we go from, from the horror to the comic section, because it doesn't affect us. It has to be a little about society and cannibalism. It has to be disturbing a little It's mad. According to the papers, the gallery owner has been charged with exhibiting a disgusting object. Box, box. The artist Mark Prent was brought up on, yes. on obscenity charges because of an art installation in which human body parts were displayed like cuts of meat in a butcher shop. Yes. What's the artist's moral or ethical responsibility within the community and in relation to community, quote, norms, etc.? In other words... Is there a line you won't cross? No. Um, the only lines I would never cross would be ones that would actually cause harm to other people. Mm -hmm. I think that if people find things offensive, I think everybody has their own scale of offensive. And I think sometimes challenging people on things that they may be uncomfortable with will do just that. It may make them uncomfortable, but it certainly won't hurt them. And you're not really forcing anybody to stay in the gallery and look at what you're doing. But as long as nobody is being harmed in the process, you're not directing anything hateful towards anybody or actually harming anybody, I think it's all open season. Have you ever completed a, a work of art that uh, you chose not to exhibit? For those reasons? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
I think at the same time, when you're an artist, there are works of art that I don't exhibit, of course, because I think they're bad or have failed. But uh, there are also works of art that I experimented with that, in the end, were important for me to explore, but I didn't feel were important enough to share with the public because Mm. that wasn't my driving goal. Uh, So uh, someone like Mark Prince, for example, this was a part of what he was doing. And I think this was a part not only of his process, but of his ideology was to kind of shake people up by showing them these things, these Mm. body parts in a butcher shop. And I think that's perfectly uh, acceptable. And and that's what he was trying to do. Mm -hmm. I actually, on another note, on the same scale, uh, there was an artist in Toronto, and I think this was in the 1990s. It was like in the early-ish 1990s. His name was Jubal Brown. Nope, sorry, I have the wrong person. Um, I'm trying to think. I can't remember his name, and I apologize. Mm. But he had a show at Mercer Union, and the show was a series of paintings that were taken down by the police after the art critic for the Globe and Mail, who was Kate Taylor at the time, called them obscene and said that they dealt with pedophilia. Mm. Now, uh, of course, I, you know, I was like, well, I, I guess I should go see this show and see what it's all about. And I actually happened to be in the gallery looking at the paintings when the police came in and closed the show and took the paintings away. Wow. And the paintings themselves, I was flabbergasted because the paintings themselves were not explicit in any way. No. Uh, they, they showed no uh, sexual explicit uh, nature of sexual activities with children or anything. And I think they were the artists who may have been dealing with the ideas or maybe his own past history. I can't really say. But the whole thing shocked me, and the whole thing was unnerving to me that a review in the newspaper could then have people, which I think what has happened, people then read the review and then called into the police and made complaints. So it wasn't even a direct someone at the gallery was offended and called the police. It was through a review by a reviewer for a major Canadian national newspaper. That was shocking. Does this go back to that Protestant uh, view that you kind of alluded to in the beginning? Yes, yes, I think so. And and I think that the whole infraction did go to court. There was a trial. And the artist, of course, was found uh, innocent of Mm -hmm. any wrongdoing whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a really perfect example of somebody who may have been dealing with uncomfortable uh, ideas or subject matter that really upset people. But at the same time, obviously, touched a nerve and allowed people to then think about these issues and to maybe broaden the way they did think about them. Well, you think that mm-hmm. after Ginsburg's howl and that whole court outcome of in being innocent, well, I guess it was Lawrence Ferlinghetti who was brought up for charges for yes. publishing Ginsburg's howl. I mean, you think that people would have learned and grown up a little bit since that time, but clearly that didn't happen in those days. So. 
Right. No, I, I think we're all kind of creatures of where we live and the cultures we've grown up in. And yeah. mm-hmm. I think there are going to be people who uh, are always going to be offended somehow or another. Yeah. I think we're living in a time now where, you know, many people get offended at the drop of a hat. Right. So um, I think this just goes on and on and on. And I'm thinking, hopefully, that people grow from these experiences or a culture grows from these experiences where everybody gets a little wiser and a little more mature rather than the other way around. I can't speak for the other uh, art worlds in Toronto, but I know the visual art world has become a very political place these days. And I think that it's something that reflects what's going on in society. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's also, in a way, what's leading what's going on in society. So um, my worries about it is that it's the type of thing where you end up in a situation where there's, again, a right thing to do and maybe a not-so-right thing to do, or, or maybe right and wrong is the wrong way to put it. It's maybe what's considered relevant or or right. not relevant. But it's also, to me, it's too easy to make art about things. And it's much harder to actually go out and try to instigate change itself. Mm-hmm. You can easily pat yourself on the back by sort of saying, I'm making art about various issues in the world today, and then just walk away and not think about it at all. But it's much, much harder to become actively involved, to become collectively involved, to work towards real change in society. And I'm not quite convinced that making art about it achieves what people would like it to achieve. Right. So let's bring this to a modern day digital world here. How has technology and more specifically digital technology impacted your work? Has it changed your target audience or marketing approach in any significant way? Uh, Technology has been a wonderful and horrible thing at the same time. Uh, (laughs) Um, On a very simple level, what's wonderful about technology is, is that you can send your work out to the world in much easier ways and you have a much broader audience for people seeing what you do. And that's as simple as posting a painting or a piece of your artwork on Instagram. You can have people all over the world see it. It makes life very, very easy in terms of practically sending out invitations to people, advertising what you're doing. You have a far greater reach. Mm -hmm. On a more creative level, I sometimes, when I'm in the studio, will get stuck on a painting. And I usually tend to work on more than one painting at a time. But I'll get stuck and I'll take a picture of it on my Android and I'll go upstairs to my desktop and I'll send me the picture and I will download it into a very simple painting program in which I can then play with the painting on the computer to try out things that may be a little more freeing to me. I might be a little more nervous to do that in the studio. Right. So there is a practical and a creative side to the actual use of technology. 
the downside of it is, is is that we have a glut of everything now to look at. You're lost in the crowd. Although you can send your work out all over the world, so is every artist in the world doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So you can get overly saturated. And as a person who works in the theater where the idea of craft is still very important, I also teach a theater painting course at Ryerson, and I'm discovering over the years that theater designers and young people aren't getting the same training mm-hmm. and rely on technology in terms of coming up with their designs by downloading images off the internet, doing everything digitally, yeah. which works great on a small screen, but they have no idea how to translate that yep. into the real world. You're talking about fundamentals. Fundamentals. People are losing fundamental skills in the arts, in the crafts that, I mean, they're still taught, but they're not taught nowhere near as much as they were. Right. And I'm finding more and more people in the old days, for example, when you were painting a set for somebody for a theatrical production or an opera, you would have a designer come in who would have painted small uh, vistas of what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And they would have a model they had built so that they knew what they wanted. They could then uh, communicate that to you and they knew the tools you had to reproduce that for a stage. Right. Well, nowadays you get computer renderings and that is a very different kettle of fish because if someone's really not sure of how they want these things produced, then they don't really know how to communicate to the craftspeople how they want them to make them. Well, you may in fact have answered the question that I was going to follow up with, which was in terms of the time spent on your art, uh, has technology reduced the time you spend on the actual execution of your art and allowed you more time to contemplate, create, and uh, develop ideas or provided you with a sounder preparation for your work? You know, I try to use technology judiciously, if that's the right way to say it, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I still try to avoid it enough because what's important to me is to go into the studio every afternoon and spend uh, at least four hours uh, with my paints and my brushes. And of course, a lot of that time is just looking and thinking, but involved in the actual activity of painting. And for other people and other artists, of course, I mean, they may use technology more directly and may be making actual art from technology itself. But for me, because of my age and because of my history uh, with the art form, really, it just comes down to me going into the studio and painting. And then technology mostly plays a role in me trying to send it out into the world. Right. Would you mind telling the listeners how old you are? I am 61 years old as of today. Oh, Amir Chitlin. Happy birthday. A youngin. <laughs> no, it's not my birthday, I should say. <laughs> but I'm in my 61st year going into my 62nd. Right. Okay. Now, uh, Richard, I have a kind of an oddball final hypothetical question for you. It might be a difficult one to answer, Richard, but here it goes. In October of last year, uh, my wife and I visited the famous Lascaux Caves in France. 
And those 20,000-year-old paintings on the cave walls were absolutely astounding and amazing to see. And mm -hmm. as we understand it, the researchers today still don't really know why they were painted, or to what ultimate purpose. So mm -hmm. my question to you is this. Let's go 20,000 years ahead from today. What might archaeologists mm -hmm. make of our culture based upon the images they dig up from the early 21st century? Well, I think they'll recognize it a, a very conflicted and complicated place. I think on very many levels, I think that the world has changed probably in greater degrees within the last 150 years than probably ever before within the history of people being on the planet yeah. between industrial revolutions and technological revolutions and intellectual revolutions and religious revolutions, as well as actual political revolutions. I mean, we live in a very, very, very complicated and uh, confusing time. And I think there are moments of genuine, creative, uh, explosiveness, and all sorts of wonderful ways of people who are making huge contributions through science, through all these things. Uh, but I think people are going to look back and scratch their heads and go, like, what the hell was going on back then? <laughs> right. I just think about the upheavals in the art world from the modernists of the late 1800s up until conceptual art. I mm -hmm, mean, mm -hmm. the art world itself has turned itself inside out so many times within that hundred years or so that I can't imagine anybody looking at this and going, what is going you know on? What? In some ways, Richard, the Dadaists, they actually triumphed in the end because it seems very absurd altogether, this world of ours and the world of images that we live within. You know, and, it, and it's that funny thing, because I think about this a lot, and I, I think the Dadaists and all those people coming right out of the First World War were very precise about recognizing the horrors of that time mm -hmm. and of the modern world they were thus facing. Yes. My issues about it may be that the world has always been a visual place, and we do have many more visuals that we have now, but... I find it's maybe wrong to blame the visuals, but more how the visuals are manipulated or who's manipulating them. Mm -hmm. I still think there's a huge desire and demand for beauty and for all sorts of things visually that people can connect to. And I think that to continue in a data is form is always interesting, but I'm wondering if it just ends up being self-defeating because it just becomes a little more nihilistic rather than mm -hmm. yeah. positive or added to culture mm -hmm. and such that way. Mm -hmm. right. There's probably listeners listening to this uh, podcast that want to follow up and get more information on you and or your work. Is there a website? Is there information that you would like to give out here for anyone that is interested in doing that? Uh, yeah, the best thing you can do is you can go to my website, which is at richardmongiat.com. So my last name is spelled M-O-N-G-I-A-T. 
and Richard, everybody knows or should know how to spell. <laughs> and you can go to my website. You could also go to uh, collectivecity.ca to see some of the films. There's a Facebook page for that as well. So that will give you information on the Toronto art scene, mostly throughout the 1990s, okay. and particularly about collectives. And uh, I think those are the two main things. And one thing everybody should go to, there's a website called the Center of Contemporary Canadian Art, and it's housed at Concordia University. And it was put together by a wonderful gentleman named Bill Kirby. And I am on that site, but there are hundreds and hundreds of other artists and projects on that site. So it's a good repository if you're interested in art. It's an older website, but it's a very good repository, and I'm giving Bill a plug here for people to find out more about Canadian artists. That's terrific. Thank you very much, Richard, for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you both for inviting me. And I just wanted to ask you guys, you're okay with all of my uh, logeria? More than <laughs> uh, more than fine. Actually, I can't speak for Harry, but for myself, sometimes with these uh, podcasts, I'm actually interested in discussing more because oftentimes getting through the mechanics of the podcast is one thing. Yeah. Oftentimes I find some of the best conversation goes on pre or post podcast, right. right? The nice thing is you guys make me feel comfortable having conversation with you. Well, that's great to know. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure. And really, I do want to thank you guys again. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, I hope I do get a chance to see you at some point later on in life. Sure, absolutely. absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Thank you again, okay. Richard. Have a good one. Oh, Take you're care. very welcome. Right. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye now. Bye-bye. Ciao, Harry. Ciao, Peter. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Dot com.